Well, you know that uh, things in life, and I know there's some of you have had a little bit more life than me, so you could say this just as truthfully or not more than me. Things in life don't always turn out the way that we expect, right? Sometimes life throws us curveballs. Sometimes things happen that we, we could never have imagined what it would turn out like, with. And uh, if any of you had asked me over three years ago, what I would uh, have experienced, what we as a church would have experienced over the last few years, none of us would have expected that. None of us would have asked for it. None of us would have probably wanted to do it over again. And you know that, uh, that God often doesn't tell us what's coming ahead because I know for me at least, maybe I have a weakness, but if he told me everything I would have had to go through, I would have had, no thanks, pick somebody else. I'm, uh, I'm okay. But uh, yeah, the last three years as a church, it's been, uh, it's been quite turbulent. It's been quite painful. It's been quite hard. Uh, for those of you who don't know, maybe you're unfamiliar, losing two different pastors to cancer in at less than four years is incredibly difficult and hard. That's not something that we ever would have expected. That's not what we thought life would have handed us as a church. But Jesus' earthly ministry, he showed that, that he didn't always do what people expected, but he did what people needed. And his, uh, his earthly ministry, if we would have thought, okay, God, the Messiah is coming to earth, it would have been for many, many, many years. But he was only on the earth in his physical presence for three years. Three short years. And during those three years, he chose the unexpected to go and to be his closest disciples. He chose the least of these. He chose humble, poor fishermen, tax collectors who were hated by the crowds. He chose people that didn't make any sense to go and create not just a small little church, but a movement that after he died and rose again would create this movement of this gospel that would spread all throughout the world. But at this point in his ministry, it had built up. He had had huge crowds, and then he had told them hard truths, and he had droves leave him. And then it would build back up, and then they would leave him. And at this time, it's coming up to the point that he had been warning about, that he had been building towards, that his whole ministry had been pointed towards. And that's his coming into Jerusalem. He had been teaching that when he came to Jerusalem, he would be coming to suffer, to be persecuted, and then to be killed. And nobody would have expected that. Out of anyone, what anyone would have thought about for the Messiah, the one that they had been hoping for to save Israel, this is not what they would have thought. They, would, they put their faith and their hope in this Messiah who would come and radically save them. They would overthrow the Roman rule that was persecuting them. However, Jesus doesn't fit himself into our expectations of him. Jesus doesn't ask us, who do you want me to be for you? And then sorts into his, our little God-sized box. He doesn't go into our preconserved notions. Instead, what he does is he invites us to join him in the ministry that he is doing in the world. He says, come and follow me. We're going to save the world together. So let's read together. I'm reading out of the NIV 2011. We're in Mark 11, 1 to 11. This is uh, in some of your Bibles. Maybe it'll say the triumphal entry. If you have a hard copy or an iBible, I'd love for you to turn there in your preferred translation. Otherwise, as always, it'll be on the screen behind me. And it says this. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. 
If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people saying there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They asked Jesus as he had told them to. They asked, sorry, they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut off in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus then entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Even the ending of this is not what we expect. Jesus comes in with these loud cries of Hosanna in the highest. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed who comes in the name of our father David. And then it says he walked in the temple, looked around, and then left. That's a bit anticlimactic, isn't it? You're expecting him to do a big miracle, to do something. And uh, as we've been walking through the, the gospel of Mark, We've been doing it a little bit out of order because uh, a lot of it happens in this last Holy Week, and I don't have uh, enough time to do 10 sermons this week, so I'm doing one. But uh, for those of you who may be familiar with it, what Jesus actually does the next day is he comes in and judges the temple. Uh, We had a message on this. He comes in, he starts flipping uh, tables, and he condemns the temple and says, this place will be judged. And so that's, that's what comes next. But here he ends with, he just looks around at the temple and then leaves after his triumphal entry. Now, uh, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus, when he, even in the beginning of this passage, in the first two verses, he tells his disciples where to go and steal, well, not steal, borrow a donkey. To go and borrow a donkey. He says, don't worry, you'll get it back. And Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, knew where it was going to be, and that uh, it would be ready, and that they would let it happen. Now, Jesus, uh, to give a little context here, Jesus' fame preceded him. When they said the teacher needs it, they, they didn't have to ask, well, which teacher? They would have known it was this Jesus from Nazareth that they were talking about. His, his uh, reputation preceded him. He had done many miracles. He had done a lot of teaching. And so they knew who he was talking about. But he, they gave him this noble steed to ride into Jerusalem. Not really. Now, Jesus' whole ministry up to this point had been spent him trying to be secret and trying to hide. He would heal someone miraculously and then tell them, please don't tell anybody. And when Jesus, Jesus, uh, who he was, was revealed to Peter, and Peter said, you're the Messiah, Jesus says, shush, don't tell anybody that, please. Keep it quiet. And so his whole ministry, he would do something amazing and then tell people to keep it quiet. And they would disobey him. They would be like, I can't, I'm too excited. I'm going to go tell everybody. He said, blah. But he, and because of this, he had so many crowds following around, he could barely do anything. And so Jesus, rather than building into these crowds and teaching them and trying to collect money from them or do whatever, he runs away from them often. He tries to go where the crowds aren't. And sometimes it's uh, foiled. The crowds go anywhere. But now, Jesus is walking openly and boldly. 
towards Jerusalem. And for those familiar with the, with the passage and with the story, at this point, Jesus had already told his disciples several times and told people publicly that Jerusalem was where he was going to be killed. Jerusalem was where he was going to be crucified. Jerusalem was where he was going to be betrayed. Jerusalem was where his end was. And yet, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, being proclaimed Messiah, being proclaimed uh, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed be the man who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the one who comes in the Lord's name. And yet, he knows what's at the other side of this trip. But they don't. So Jesus, we have two different things that, that we see. Jesus doesn't come in quietly because Jesus wasn't afraid of his enemies. He knew that his death was coming. He knew that the religious leaders were going to kill him. But he wasn't afraid. He walked boldly towards that death anyway. And the second is that Jesus didn't hide from his coming suffering. He didn't try and buy himself another couple of years on earth. He, he boldly walked towards it because he wasn't afraid of his enemies and he wasn't afraid to, and he didn't hide from his sufferings. Now, the, even calling this passage the triumphal entry is, is a little bit weird. And it's a little bit of a weird thing because uh, Jesus was not yet a conquering king. But the way that he enters into Jerusalem was like a conquering king. And usually a conquering king has defeated armies. They have done something. They have, in the field, they have, they have uh, beaten the enemies of Israel. And so they, uh, in the Old Testament, there would be kings that uh, would come into Jerusalem. And they would have the crowds uh, wave palm branches like this and shout Hosanna and shout blessings from God. But Jesus, at this point, hadn't conquered anything. But they were hoping that he would conquer Roman. They were hoping he would conquer their political enemies. But Jesus had been warning that this is where he would uh, suffer, die, be rejected. But we can think maybe as, as readers, if we, if we aren't super familiar, but we're just looking at this passage, we can think, well, maybe Jesus got it wrong. Maybe Jesus thought he would be rejected. Maybe Jesus thought he would be persecuted. But how could that happen when all these people are proclaiming that he's the Messiah. All these people are super excited that he's here. Maybe, maybe he was wrong. And if we're reading it for the first time, we could say, yeah, like, he must be wrong. Like, he must have just been a little worried or stressed. Or You know how you can worry or stress about things, and then it never happens? You think the worst-case scenario, and then it never happens? Maybe we can think, well, that's, what's, that's what Jesus is doing. He's just worrying. He's stressed here. And sometimes, as I said at the beginning, things don't always turn out the way we expect, the way we, uh, that we can imagine. Now, Kirsten and I have quite a few of these kind of insulated containers where you can't see what's inside. And uh, I had a youth ask me what's inside this, and I'll just say, you can guess yourselves. You can think whatever's in here that you want, but it's water. But, uh, but uh, we had one of these at home, and uh, our oldest daughter, Liberty, uh, one time, uh, well, she does this all the time, but... Uh, she thought it was her mother's, but it was actually my bottle. And uh, she went to drink from it, thinking it was water. But it wasn't. It was coffee. <laughs> and I don't know about any of you, but when you were four years old, you didn't really like coffee. I didn't like it until I was like 19. But she, uh, she thought what she was drinking was water. And it was definitely not the taste of water. So she spit it back out onto her dress 
And then in the four-year-old way, she went and took her dress off, put it in the wash without telling anybody, went and put a new dress on. Her mother noticed and said, oh, you wanted to change? And she just said, yes. <laughs> and that was it. I just found this out this week, she told me. She said, Papa, one time, and we went through the whole story, and I said, well, I'll have to tell your mother that because that's really funny. And uh, she said, you tell the church that, Papa. And so it worked with this sermon, so I told her. I told it. I'll have to tell her. She's sick at home, so she won't know. But yeah, oh, I know. It's, it's really hard on me. Thank you. Um, it is. She's throwing up, and it's not nice. But anyways, so it wasn't, it wasn't what she expected. So this, this thing that she, was expect, that she was expecting in that instant wasn't what she got. Now, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, what the people there think that he's doing, that he's coming there, isn't what they got. Their expectations were not met by Jesus. Because they weren't the right thing. So Jesus did come as the king. He came as the conquering king. But instead of this noble on this well-groomed animal, he came on a rough, untamed, shaggy donkey. The fact that this colt had never been uh, ridden before is an indication it wouldn't have been upkept. And it would have been rough. It wouldn't have been trained. So it could have been bucking him. It could have been doing whatever. But Jesus chose this rough, untamed animal to ride into Jerusalem. And instead of, uh, instead of this conquering king who's walking in on these royal robes that we could imagine, this royal carpet's rolled out, the red carpet rolled out, instead he's, he's walking in on poor people's clothing and uh, on just palm branches and things that would have just been cut out of the fields, different branches and, and greenery. So this, this king of kings, this lord of lords, is walking in on the, the dirty clothes of poor people and free branches that people pillaged off of the fields around them. This is what Jesus, the King of Kings, comes in on. And this crowd is proclaiming Jesus as King. Before he's conquered Romans, before he's done everything, but they thought he was a totally different King than he was. They knew he was King, and they were right about that, but they thought he was a King like David. Now, for those who maybe aren't super familiar with the Old Testament, David was the greatest king that Israel ever had. He wasn't a perfect king, but God had promised him through, uh, through, um, through his words and through his prophets and through speaking to him that he would have a kingdom that would last forever. That his descendant, there would be a descendant that would rule forever, that would be perfect. And yet that never happened. And so they were waiting for this, this Messiah, this person to come back to rule just like David did. The kingdom during David had... Uh, a ton of war, but they defeated all their enemies. It seemed like no matter where David went, he would win the battles. And so they were waiting for Jesus to come in, to be like this king, to overthrow their political enemies, to go in and to kill all their enemies. And so they're, they're, pr- they're singing out these nationalistic slogans about the power and the glory of David. And they want this back. They want Israel restored. They want their, their nation to be powerful again. And so they're proclaiming him triumphant. But they're right that Jesus is king, but he was not a typical monarch with just a temporal empire. So he's not a typical king with just a temporary empire. All kings die, and all empires fade. But Jesus himself doesn't die, and his kingdom never fades. But their hopes for him, imagine this, you've been waiting for this man, the savior to come, this one who's blessed by God, And yet, less than a week later, he dies. Imagine how much your hopes would have been crushed. 
Now, Jesus wasn't the first messianic hopeful. They had tons of people that would raise themselves up and say, I'm the Messiah, I'm coming. But none of them came back to life. But even then, just, just stick on Friday for a sec. Think of the hopelessness that they would have felt. This man that they had proclaimed king that was going to come, that was going to fulfill all their hopes and dreams, was just killed. Imagine what that would have felt like. He let them down, it seems like. This man who, uh, this man who was supposed to rule over the nation of Israel and, and conquer, in a few short days he surrenders meekly and humbly to this mob with clubs They come to arrest him, and he just humbly goes with them. He doesn't even say anything, barely. Instead of a crown of gold that he should be wearing, he wears a crown of thorns. Instead of having this throne that he gets to go and sit on, he's enthroned on a cross. Uh, Instead of being hailed as king like he should be, he's hailed as a thief and the chief of fools. Now, the the whole kingdom of God looks like this. On the outside, it makes no sense. On the outside, it seems foolish. On the outside, it seems like nothing. But on the inside, it's everything. On the inside, it's where there's true hope, where there's true grace, where there's true love. On the outside, Jesus' death looks like defeat. Of course it does. How, how is death ever victory? When someone dies, our, our hope for their healing fades. When someone dies, our hope for our relationship with them seems to die. But when Jesus died, this defeat, this death, becomes ultimate victory. So even this, even this passage, as I said, doesn't turn out the way we expect. It just ends abruptly. It seems to make no sense. This, the crowds that hail Jesus as king, it, this should have momentum should have carried on, shouldn't it? Shouldn't he have went on, sat on a throne? Shouldn't he have overthrown everything? Shouldn't he have made peace? But while the crowds are hailing Jesus as king, the donkey's actually bringing him closer to his cross. And so just picture, if you're a visual person, Jesus just riding this donkey with tons of excited people shouting out their joy and their praise to God. And it just in Jesus' mind, he just is imagining they're all pushing him towards the cross. Just the foreshadow of the cross for Jesus is on this whole event. He knows what's coming. And even though he's told his disciples, his closest friends, his closest followers, that the cross is coming, they deny it. They reject it. They say, no, that can't be true. They absolutely deny that that could possibly happen. Even Peter had argued with him and said, even if the rest fall away, I'll stick with you. Even if all these other ones fall away, I I will be there. But Jesus, all the way, is willing to walk towards this. Now, the people that, that hail Jesus as king, they're hailing him as king because they want him to be the king that they expect. They want him to be the one that, that brings and restores glory to Israel. They want him to restore the kingdom of Israel. They want power again. They want to be God's chosen people that is better than all the other nations. That's what they want. They want him to restore the glory of the kingdom of David. And then his son that came after Solomon before he got really foolish, even though he was wise, the peace that he had and the prosperity that he had, 
before his heart got led astray by other gods. They want that once again. That's what they're hoping for. But the truth is, if we hail Jesus, we must hail him as the one who comes to die for our sins, not as the one who comes to bring us glory. We hail him as the king who sacrificed himself. The king who conquered death. The king who willingly was enthroned on the cross, who wore a crown of thorns instead of a crown of gold. Not as the one who came to bring us glory. Not as the one who came to give us an easy peasy, as my daughter would say, easy peasy life. He came to bring us a life that is hard sometimes, but is so much better with him. That's what he came to bring. And so if, if we lift him up and say he's king, then we have to be the one that lifts him up to build the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of David. Because the kingdom of David was temporary and temporal and it faded. But the kingdom of God is forever. And so the, as the people are crying out, Hosanna, save us. Essentially they're saying, praise God, save us. And Jesus did come to save them. He did come. He was the Savior. But they wanted to be saved from the Romans. But what Jesus came to save them from wasn't their political enemies. He came to save them from themselves. And what we need most is to be saved from ourselves. The truth and the hope of the gospel starts with the bad news. That none of us are good. All of us are sinful. Every single person has fallen short of the perfection of God. Every single one of us has rebelled against God in our hearts. That's where it starts. It started in the Garden of Eden and has continued ever since. That every human has gone astray. And the only thing that can save us is the work of Jesus on the cross. The cost of sin is death. And so the only thing that can redeem us from sin is death. And so that's Jesus' death on the cross. So Jesus didn't come to save them from the Romans. Jesus came to save them from their sin. And there's three particular things that the people uh, at this time, and even us these days, can get distracted by, and that Jesus comes to save us from. The first is petty pursuits. I like repetition. So petty pursuits. Things that don't matter. Things that that don't actually uh, transition into the next life. And one of the things that, that goes on in the world even today is petty nationalism. Raising up one nation over another. You know that the, uh, it's interesting because if you, if you talk to kids when they're, when they're quite young, they don't even see color of skin. There's uh, this really cute video that I've seen uh, where it has these two kids that are, uh, one is obviously Asian and one is obviously Caucasian. And they ask, what's different about you two? Like, what, what makes you guys different from each other? And they're like, ah, uh, nothing. We're the same. We're, we're best friends. We're the same. And then they had a boy and a girl, and same thing. They're like, I don't know. We're, we're the same. We're people. But, but we have to actually be taught. No, no, no. You're not just people. You're, you're this category of person. And this is your nation. And this is your race. And this is your job. And this is your this. And this is your this. But in God's eyes, we're all children of God. There's no such thing as national borders. They're actually this thing that's just in our head, if you actually think about it. You know, if you've, if you've traveled in the sky, and I, when I was a kid, I actually thought this was really weird because I thought the maps were actually what the world looked like. And I was like, oh, there's no line there. 
You know, the only person who says the line there is other people. There's no actual line there unless it, Trump builds his border wall. But anyways, <laughs> there's no lines. There's no lines in the world. The only thing that the, the kingdom of God is for is for all people. It reaches beyond all borders, all cultures, all languages, all peoples. The kingdom of God is not in one place or another place. It's everywhere for everyone that would put their faith, hope, and trust in God. So there's no such thing as Canadian in the kingdom of heaven. Even though if there were, I think that would be the best. But no, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But anyways, so he saves us from our petty pursuits. And the second thing is our fickle faith. So Jesus isn't, isn't interested in occasional followers. There's no such thing as sometimes followers of Jesus. Even there's no such thing as once a week Christians. Christian means little Christ, so followers of Jesus. There's no such thing as every once in a while you follow God. Well, you know, I go a couple times a year or whatever. That's, that's not. A relationship with God is every day. And maybe, maybe it's not a good relationship, but a relationship with God is every day. And so for those who, uh, it's not for those who fall away when it gets difficult. You know, if, if uh, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but there's a huge difference between having a passion and a hobby. If you have a passion, you'll sacrifice to pursue that passion. But if you have a hobby, you, you let it go when it, you get too busy, it gets too expensive, it gets too hard. Now, there are, there are hobby followers of Jesus. They do it, they just tack it onto their lives. But then there's passionate followers of Jesus that it doesn't matter what it costs, they go after him. And this isn't something that it's just saying, okay, let's, let's, let's buck ourselves up, let's pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get going and following Jesus. No. Jesus actually saves us from fickle faith. So there's a, there's a follower, uh, a man that his, his son is healed, and Jesus says, if you believe, it will be done. And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. So if you say, Jesus, I have faith, but my faith isn't very good, give me faith. He'll give us more faith. Because he wants to. He wants us to love him. He's, he's on our side. So he saves us from our fickle faith. He helps us to endure through suffering and stay faithful even when it's hard and painful. And the third is that he saves us from empty expectations of glory. So the crowds and even uh, Jesus' disciples, his closest friends, had this false understanding of what it would be like when Jesus came as king. And they, they, you can see this in his followers by their arguing, which one of us is the greatest? Which of us is the best? Which of us gets the most follow glory from being closest to Jesus? And Jesus says, uh, he responds to them, he says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Which makes us think, well, yeah, I can drink water or wine or whatever. Like, I can drink, yeah, sure. He's, the cup that he's talking about is the cup of suffering and the cup of wrath. He said, can you suffer the way that I'm going to suffer? Because if you want to be close to me, that's what it takes. It takes being willing to suffer and die to give up your life for the sake of others. That's what it means to be close to Jesus. So he says, yes, if you can do that, you can be close to me. But that's what he invites everyone into. Now, in our earthly perception of the way the world works, we don't think that suffering is good. Because <laughs> it's not. Everything inside of us, pain is, a, is something that is made to go, we shy away from that. But... What Jesus says is if you actually are willing to suffer and to die and to be hurt, then you will receive help. Then you will receive glory. And so rather than uh, people getting the wealth and security of this, this temporary nation of Israel, instead they go into the, uh, into the kingdom of God 
where the enemy is death, the enemy is pain, but those things are temporary in this life, and in the end, there's final victory. Now, the upside-down kingdom of God is so much different than we expect. Jesus says that the, the kingdom of God is for everyone. He says it's open to everyone, but it, it, it looks so ridiculous. If you say we follow after this man who was killed by the, the religious leaders that should have been the ones that actually knew him the best and loved him the most, it makes zero sense. It makes no sense. Why would this, this Jewish Messiah be killed by Jewish people? It makes zero sense. And why, why would we believe that he rose again from the grave? That makes zero sense doesn't it? Is that something that normally happens? And even the, even the Jewish people, they believed in the resurrection. Well, and uh, you can tell this because when uh, Jesus' close friend Lazarus died and his sisters are super distraught and mad at Jesus and they chew him out and say, why weren't you here? If you were here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, don't worry, I'll raise him from the dead. And they say, yes, we know everyone's raised from the dead at the end of days. And he said, no, I'm going I'm to raise him right now. That was, that was unthinkable for them. They knew that there was a final day. But even just the thought that someone be raised from the dead didn't make sense. And even Jesus' followers, if you read ahead past this passage, when Jesus rose from the dead, they didn't believe it. They said, there's no way. Doubting Thomas, we pick on him, but we'd all be him probably. They say, I won't believe it unless I can put my hands in the holes in his hands and the hole in his side. I won't believe it. I have to see it to believe it. And yet, greater is the one who believes without seeing, is what Jesus says. And so it makes no sense. But that's what faith is. We can, we can believe because Jesus believed in us. Enough to walk towards that cross and to die for us. It says, while we were still enemies. Now, enemies aren't nice. Enemies hate. Enemies curse. Enemies work to go against you. While we are still enemies, Jesus willingly rode that donkey and walked himself towards that cross because he loves you. Because he loved you enough to do that. Now, the way the world works, we go, okay, what's the cost? You know, if I'm going to get something, I've got to do something. If, I, if I'm going to get something, I have, to, I have to buy it, I have to earn it, I have to do something. So Jesus is saying, yeah, he'll forgive me, so what do I have to do? Do I have to uh, pray a certain way? Do I have to do a certain thing? Do I have to, what's my list of things I have to do in order to get into heaven? You know what Jesus says? He says, it's free. I did it because you couldn't do it. He says, you can't buy it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You want to go into heaven? I'll make a way because I am the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through Jesus, the Son. And so if you want to be in heaven, follow after Jesus. That's it. Everything else, everything else, any other works, going to church, praying, reading your Bible, anything else, those are the results of your salvation. Those are the, what you get to do because Jesus already did it all. That's the joy of a relationship with Jesus. And no other religion in the world says that. Every other religion in the world makes sense from our minds. It says that we have to do a certain thing, and if we 
happen to do enough good things, then maybe we'll make it in. But Jesus says, you've done a whole bunch of terrible things, but I'll love you anyways if you'd say, I'm sorry, and you follow after me. That's it. Makes no sense, but that's what Jesus did. He loved us even when we were enemies. And so when, when we get to exchange our death, our sin, our disobedience for his obedience, for his resurrected life, for his love for us. So if we accept the death of Jesus, we'll gain life. If we hail Jesus as king, then we'll lift up his sacrificial death and suffering and say, because of my sins, he hung on that cross. Then we get to have a relationship with him. And what a blessing that is. And so if we want to enjoy the benefits of Jesus' kingship, then we have to surrender our lives to him. Because it's this exchange. It's saying Jesus will give us his obedience, his perfect sinless life for our broken, sinful disobedience. But he says, give me it all. Give it all to me. You can't just trade half of it. You've got to give it all to me. Because if we're trying to hold back our lives and say, well, you know, I want to follow God, but I, I still got to hold on to this pocket in my life. Well, then that... Is Jesus actually a passion or is he just part? Are we trying to hedge our bets with him? Trying to go, well, if this is real, then I'll follow him. But, or are we just all in and say, Jesus, take it all. Now, let me, uh, let me pray for you because I know God is speaking something to, to each person here and maybe we have the ears to hear it. But there's, before I pray and before the worship team comes up and helps us respond, there's just three practical ways I like to give to, to respond to this morning's message. The first is to read Mark 11. Read the whole thing. We read the first 11 verses, but read the part where Jesus comes in and, and uh, um, rebukes the temple as well and flips over tables. Awesome passage. And ask God to speak to you through it. And then ask yourself, is Jesus truly king of my heart? And uh, it's a metaphorical way of saying it, and there's different, different ways, but is he on the throne of your life? Instead of, instead of being an advisor to you. So when you go through each day, do you, do you ask Jesus, okay, what should I do next? Or do you say, Jesus, tell me what to do because it's your life, not mine. Do we just go to him when we need something, when we need advice? Or is he directing everything? And then the third is to pray. Pray that, to see Jesus for who he truly is. To see for how much he loves you, how much he cares about you. Pray for him to reveal himself to you. And now, even as the worship team comes up and helps us respond, let me pray for all of us. Jesus, I thank you. You are so good. You are so mighty and strong. And your name is holy. You alone are worthy of our praise. And Jesus, you have called us to follow after you. You have made a way. This triumphal entry was not the way that we would have expected it to go. This triumphal entry was you walking towards your death. But through that, you triumphed over death. And Jesus, as we, as we spend time this week thinking and reflecting on the truth of who you are during this holy week, may we remember on Wednesday about how you were betrayed. May we remember how one of your closest friends came up and betrayed you with a kiss. And may on Thursday... May we, may we think about uh, what, what transpired there, Lord. And on, uh, and on Friday, may we remember how you were sacrificed, Lord. 
how you willingly, like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, walk towards the cross. Jesus, you are so good and you are so loving to us. May each one of us here this morning know your love for us and experience that love. May we not walk away from it unchanged. May we walk away transformed because you are living with us and walking with us. Jesus, I thank you for your love for each one of us. I thank you that you loved us enough to pay for our sins on the cross. May you be the king of each one of our hearts. Whether we've known you for many, many years or whether we're just trying to figure out who you are, Jesus, may we walk in obedience. Not because we have to earn your love, but because we're already loved. In your mighty and precious name we pray. Amen.